Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. I've teamed up with the St. Louis on the Air producing folks to launch the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. It's a program that takes a deep look at politics and policy in Missouri, Illinois, and the St. Louis region. Here's the debut episode. I'm so excited to launch this new show where we'll take a closer look at the big policy issues and political trends in Missouri, Illinois, and the St. Louis region. State and local government plays such a massive role in our lives, but oftentimes people don't know how it works. And my hope is this program, monthly for now, will make politics and policy more understandable, making you more informed and armed with the knowledge to make our communities better. I've spent the last 17 years as a political journalist, including about five years covering the Missouri General Assembly. And even though every state representative and state senator seems to think they're extremely important, there's only one person who is truly critical to the legislative process, the Speaker of the Missouri House. Good afternoon and welcome to the last week of session. Will everybody in the House and the galleries please, please rise? and we'll begin our day with a prayer by Representative Dan Stacy. That's Dean Plocker, the current Speaker of the House. He's not just responsible for banging a gavel to open up session, but also for steering legislation and organizing the House's committees. The Speaker can kill any bill or fast-track something they feel is a priority. Since the advent of term limits in the early 2000s, most Speakers have typically served for two to four years. When Plocker leaves the House after 2024, House Majority Leader John Patterson will take his place. But Plocker has been under immense scrutiny this week after the Missouri Independent reported he received travel expense reimbursements from the Missouri House that had already been paid for by his campaign. While Plocker has chalked the expenses up to administrative errors, he's facing bipartisan calls to resign, and that's putting more of a spotlight on Patterson. Patterson is a Republican from Lee's Summit, which is just south of Kansas City. And he's taken an unusual route to Missouri politics. He received his undergraduate and medical degrees from the University of Missouri-Columbia. And he put his career as a surgeon on hold as he began to rise in the Missouri House, culminating earlier this year when his caucus selected him as the Speaker-designee for the 2025 to 2026 session. I spoke with Patterson last Friday before the revelations about Plocker's expenses came to light. Representative Patterson, welcome to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Jason, thanks a lot. Glad to be with you. Really glad to be here. When you ran for the Missouri House in 2018, did you expect that you would get to a point where you were on the precipice of becoming Speaker? I did not. Uh, you know, just when you're elected, you're just trying to figure out how things work, uh, where the bathrooms are, and trying to learn the process. I never thought in a million years that I would be the speaker. I just wanted to go there and and learn the process, uh, tr try to get some get some things accomplished. But no, I never sat there and thought, gee, I think I could be speaker someday. 
nobody gets to the speakership all by themselves. Who are some people that helped you along the way as you rose in Republican leadership? You know, there were so many people that helped me, but just off the top of my head, uh, you know, uh, Jean Evans, uh, she works in the education space now. She's been a great friend and um, kind of a mentor and just someone with great ideas. I still keep up with uh, former speaker Elijah Har. Uh, he's been uh, he's been great. And but there have been so many people, just members, family people. And along the way, you know, people in politics, um, despite what people say, people are pretty nice and they they're always wanting to help you and give you advice. And I've gotten ad- advice from a lot of great people. My state senator, Mike Searpoy, he'd be one. He's been a mentor to me. And it's and everybody's just been very good to good to me. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that. My understanding is the speaker gets to pick out their own gavel. We learned that from Elijah Har. Have you have you heard that? Oh, you, really? Yeah. No, I had not heard that they get their is to your, pick out a gavel. Is your gavel going to be black and gold because it's a great day to be a Missouri I, Tiger? I can't think of a better. Now you have me excited. I'm going to go try to find a black and gold uh, gavel. But yes, I think having uh, anything Mizzou at the Capitol is, uh, is a good thing. So after you get handed the speaker's gavel in 2025, you will become the first person of Asian descent to ever hold the office. In fact, every single speaker up until you will have been white. What does this mean to you? Well, you know, I tell people because I've been asked this and, um, you know, I'm pretty casual about race and my race. But I, I do recognize that there have been a lot of people that have come before me that didn't have the opportunities I had because of their race. So I, I don't um, want to discount that at all. I think it's a great thing. Um, I think uh, if someone comes to the Capitol, like school kids and school groups, and they see someone on the dais that, that looks like them um, and they're inspired by it, I think it's a great thing. And it's a, it's a good thing for Missouri. You know, we're a, we are a diverse state. If you travel around, um, there's diversity there. And so I think if we have it in the upper ranks of our uh, government, I think that's a, that's a good thing. So I was doing some research, and the Pew Research Center found that six in 10 Asian Americans identify as Democrats. You are clearly in the 40 percent. You are yes, a Republican. In the proud 40 percent. Why did you decide to become a Republican? You know, I think just the things that, um, that I value in our government, and this is not to say that Republicans have all the answers or Democrats have all the answers, but just things uh, and the experiences that I've had, I think I just align more with that. But but, you know, my brother is a ultra liberal, you know, Democrat. Uh, we get along. I think some of the, th- the things that he brings up, I, I definitely see. And I think it works best when you can see both sides. But you have to pick one. And, and I uh, firmly align with the Republicans. What's the biggest argument that you've gotten into with your brother? Oh, probably, you know, I think guns, guns are always a, a hot topic uh, anytime you're um, – kind of dealing with conservative versus liberal. Um, I think we've had discussions about health care, uh, probably uh, things to do with uh, uh, tort reform. He's a, he's a lawyer. Um, but yeah, it's, it, um, we, we're always very friendly, but we, we have our disagreements. Are there any particular issues that you were really passionate about either during your time in public office or before that drove you to the Republican side? Well, I've always been... Um, uh, you know, I, I, when I was in practice, I, I, I helped run a small business. So I'd, I'd always thought that, um, you know, Republicans are a bit friendlier in terms of uh, business. So uh, that kind of made me um, align with them more. I think it's just kind of uh, 
limited government, um, limited regulations, and just let uh, people, uh, let business owners and job creators do what they do best. So you have been in the Missouri legislature for five years now. What would you say is the toughest issue that you've encountered as a legislator? The toughest issue... You know, we have tough ones. I think I think guns and, and crime is tough. I think we had a, um, uh, I think an amendment or a bill last year that uh, with this problem of kids carrying guns in the city of St. Louis, um, and I think it, they wanted to ban the kids carrying guns, which I think is a very reasonable thing to do. But then you also have to look at... Um, if, if some kid is out hunting in rural Missouri, are they are they now going to be a criminal? And so it's. I think we took a lot of heat for that. I think it was it made national news that we want toddlers to have guns, but it's never that simple. And so when you're when you're dealing with something like that, I think you have to look at all the sides. And ultimately, I, th- I thought there was something different that we should do than criminalize some kid out there that's 16 years old hunting on public land. Yeah, it does seem like there is a lot of resistance within your caucus to restricting guns in any way. But then there's also this pent-up frustration here in St. Louis and in Kansas City and elsewhere that you're not seeing a lot of action on guns from Jefferson City. How do you kind of balance those two competing lines of thought? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think some of it is just philosophical, and some of it is that rural-urban divide. Um, and I, I can see where people in St. Louis um, would think, you know, we want more restrictions, and and uh, the vast majority of the Repu- House Repub- the House Republican Conference, anyway, you know, is firmly firmly in the camp of protecting Second Amendment rights. So I think that's where you have the disconnect. And um, I think. There'll be, I think there are ways that we can kind of address crime that don't necessarily uh, restrict people's Second Amendment rights. So I think that's, those are the things that we have to work on, but I can see why people in the city and um, feel differently than people in the rural areas. Earlier this year, House Republicans sought to prohibit spending for, quote, staffing vendors, consultants, or programs associated with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that didn't end up making it through the Senate, but it's clearly something that your caucus wanted. How did you approach that issue? Well, I think that was done in the budget process. And um, on that issue, I think they call it DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion. On that, when you ask people, do you want diversity in your schools and workplace? Yes. Do you want equity? Yes. Do you want an an inclusive environment? Yes. But it's then when you put this, this label on it, of DEI, it turns into something completely different. What I want in, in people's workplaces and education is for people to be treated uh, equally in colleges, for people to be um, you know, advanced on their merits. And I think with the recent Supreme Court case and affirmative action, it's addressed that a little bit. So I, I think when you label something as DEI, um, I think it gets a bad connotation. But we, we want diversity and equity in, in workplaces and schools. So I think for that, I, I'm okay with saying that uh, we, we fumbled that one. Yeah. There was a lot of pushback from Governor Mike Parson's administration on this. I talked with Department of Social Services Director Robert Nodell, and he says having DEI programs is critical to hiring people in his agency, which has been short-staffed for a long time. So how else do you talk about diversity and equity inclusion if you don't do it programmatically? 
Right. And, um, you know, companies, every Fortune 500 company out there has it. Churches have it. I think, uh, I think it's a reasonable thing to do. And, and I think uh, what we were trying to say, what, what we felt it was trying to say, and it was a bit of a surprise um, when it was, the amendment was put on and you have to make a decision right there, is that we just don't want people to be discriminated against. And I think that there's a universal agreement on that. So I asked you about your toughest moment as a legislator. What was your best moment as a legislator in the past five years? I think uh, the best moment, and it's just when I was the most proud, is when we were able to uh, pass the um, health care uh, coverage for postpartum women and to do it without you know, a whole lot of controversy. And I think um, you know that's something that um, I worked on. I, I did uh, sponsor one of the bills for it. And to see it go through and uh, for us to be uh, united on it, that was a very proud moment. And I like to think, um, just being a part of that, that, um, that I had something to do with it. I'm talking with Representative John Patterson of Lee's Summit. I spoke with him last Friday. We'll have more of that conversation in just a moment. This is the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Welcome back. I want to keep on the topic of difficult issues. Um, there have been times when you have diverged from your caucus on on major pieces of legislation. For instance, you were one of several Republicans to vote against a bill that bars minors from accessing things like puberty blockers and hormone therapy. Why did you end up uh, diverging from your caucus there? Well, you know, we're not a monolithic group. I, we're all, um, it's okay to think for yourself. And I and I might have had a different perspective on uh, that than um, uh, the other members. And I, the members that voted for the bill, I can completely see where they're coming from because this, the, the drugs and what we're doing, um, I, I even question um, what we're doing. One of my friends uh, does this particular kind of medicine. I'm, I'm very uh, inquisitive with her about, well, what are you doing? How, you know, what's going on? Because it is fairly new in terms of um, uh, the medicine that I've seen. Uh, this is not something that we studied in medical school. But I, I just came to the conclusion that, that I think the negatives outweigh the positives. And I think there will be positive things that happen because of the bill. Um, and that so that I, I wasn't going to uh, vote for it. And that's okay. We're, what, we're allowed to think for ourselves. What sort of negatives? You, you said the negatives outweigh the positives. What were the negative ramifications that led you to vote for, against the bill? Well, I think, um, you know, anytime you have the state uh, come in and tell parents and, and kids uh, what they can do in terms of medical treatment, I think that's very problematic. I think uh, 16, 17-year-olds, um, you know, can can start to make medical decisions for themselves. Um, I think the way we did the bill, what I would like to have seen is that uh, we uh, make counseling mandatory and have certain restrictions. And then I would, I would have liked to have been studied because when you're looking at medical procedures and treatments, uh, you need data. And so we would have been able to study it and then eventually come to a conclusion whether we think this is good or bad. But by banning it, we've just kind of 
sent these kids to other states, basically. So you are, as we mentioned on the outset, you are a medical doctor, and a lot of medical associations have vouched for what's known as gender-affirming care. Is that another reason that, that came into your decision-making as well? Yes, in so much as that those are societies that kind of look at the information and, and are trying to make recommendations based on what they think is best medically. That's part of it. But I think the greatest reason was, I'll, I'll tell you uh, the greatest reason in the, in the moment that I made the absolute decision that I wasn't going to vote for it is um, recently the American Academy of Pediatrics said that for very obese teenagers – uh, that they should consider having weight loss surgery because that's really the only thing that really uh, treats uh, morbid obesity. And when you have a child that's very obese, we know that they're uh, set up for health problems down the road and that they will uh, probably die of cardiovascular disease much sooner than they should have if you're that obese at a young age. And so surgery should be considered. Well, there's no reason that the state couldn't come in and then say, you can't do surgery and uh, on this because of it's dangerous or it's experimental. And uh, I, I firmly believe that there are some teenagers that would benefit from weight loss surgery because of the, the severe effects of morbid obesity on every system in your body. So it's just once we start doing this and go down this path, I think that's that's going to negatively affect healthcare for kids. So there's a reason I'm asking you about this in addition to being a, a very top-of-mind issue. As House Majority Leader, you're responsible for bringing bills to the floor. And as Speaker, you're going to be responsible for setting an agenda. How do you manage a situation like what we just talked about, where you may be personally, you may personally disagree with the caucus priority, but you're still responsible for shuttling it through the legislature? Yes. So I think when you uh, go into leadership, you kind of set aside your um, you know, personal priorities and bills. This was obviously a priority for 99% of our members. So there was never a point that I would have said, we're not doing this. I think my job is to uh, see what our the House Republican Conference wants, and this was definitely a priority. So uh, I made sure to, to, to make sure it got done. Why do you think the, the issue of barring gender-affirming care for minors has been such a large issue, not only in Missouri, but other Republican-leaning states? I think a, a lot of it is because it's if you're if you're not in the medical field and you just kind of hear about it, it, it is somewhat shocking. Um, you know, when I was in med school, the way I learned about these drugs, it's a it's a drug for prostate cancer, and then when you read in the paper that they're giving it to kids, um, I think there's a shocking aspect to it. And and when I learned about it, I was you know I, I was surprised by it and wanted to learn more about it. But I just think it's it just seems. To the layperson, I think it seems very severe, and people have questions about that, and 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 that's okay. I think uh, I think people are, are right to question when we're what medical treatments we're doing to kids. Some transgender Missourians who I talked with over the summer are bracing for laws that would restrict adults from receiving hormone therapy or gender transition surgery. Would this be something that you would oppose if it came up during your speakership? I would oppose that. Uh, I think we, we have to draw the line somewhere, and if, if we're going to be a government that uh, is now dictating medical care for adults, then I don't think that's very Republican or very conservative. So let me uh, explain why that's important. When you become Speaker in 2025, you're going to become extraordinarily powerful. 
Here's how former State Senator Jeff Smith described the speakership during a 2015 episode of the Politically Speaking podcast. Some might argue it's even more powerful than the governor's office. Mm Mm-hmm. In a lot of respects, because the governor is presented with a, you know, a, a binary decision, sign a bill or veto it. And the person who really shapes that whole piece of paper, you know, that, that, that document on his desk is the Speaker of the House. Nothing a Speaker of the House, that, that a Speaker of the House does not want to become law, becomes law. Yeah. You know, if, if they want to kill something, they have 15 different stages of the process where they can kill it. They can prevent it from ever even going to a committee. Mm-hmm. They can find a friendly senator. And this is how Rod and I, Rod Jett and I became close. He needed to pretend that he was supporting certain things that he really didn't want to become law. Mm-hmm. And so he would let them pass the House and then find a friendly senator, cut a deal with someone like me to, you know, stand up and talk a lot about the bill and then maybe a a bill that I really cared about that would help the city might find its way through the House mysteriously. That is former state Senator Jeff Smith talking about why the Speaker of the House is so powerful. How do you approach a job where you have so much power and responsibility? You know, I I have gotten to know uh, the former senator uh, pretty well. He's become a friend, and uh, he's also someone that has uh, helped me along the way, and I, I just enjoy always talking with him. Yeah, I think uh, anytime you have you're given positions of authority, I think it's you have to ha- have people that uh, are willing to tell you things that you don't want to hear. Um, and I think um, I think when you lose that, that's when people in power kind of go off track. So I think you just have to remember what got you there and and listen to people that uh, and hear things that you're not you don't necessarily always want to hear. I'm talking with Representative John Patterson, the Republican Majority Leader of the House, who will become Speaker of the House in 2025. Smith also mentioned that the Speaker is often burdened by demands of scores of interest groups. He, has to, he or she has to deal with criticism from all corners of the Capitol. How do you plan to approach this job without going completely insane? You know, and here's where I think uh, medical training is kind of kind of uh, help get you ready for a, a job like that. And I've told this to doctors groups, but being speaker or being floor leader is a, is a bit like being the chief resident. And so you have all these residents and you it's your job to deal with all their complaints when they're behaving, to give them pats on the back, when they're misbehaving, to kind of come down on them. You have to take criticism from all the attendings and, and all the people that are there. And so I think you just have to kind of take it one person at a time. You can't make everybody happy. But if you're willing to listen, I think someone, former Representative Roy Rowland, I just uh, recently met with him and he told me that uh, someone once said that a man would rather have his story heard than his wish granted. And so I think in those kind of positions, you do a lot of listening. And that's what I've tried to do as floor leader. And I expect that's what I'll do as speaker. Do you have any general priorities at this early juncture that you would like to prioritize when you become speaker in 2025? Yes. I uh, was recently on a trip to um, Japan with the governor. And um, the businesses that we all met with, they, they, they all said the same thing one after another. We need good infrastructure. When we're moving our products from uh, Missouri to other parts of the state, we, we need roads and bridges that, that are world class. We need a good education system for our um, employees that work there. Uh, we need those employees to be safe. And so I think if we just work on those things, uh, we'll have plenty to do. 
You are a lifelong Jackson Countyan. I won't hold that against you. Except for your time at Mizzou, by yes. the way. I want to make yes. that clear. Eight years. Eight years there. But Republican lawmakers often take an outsized interest in the St. Louis region. What sort of policies do you think you would want to pursue that benefit this region? Well, uh, you know, being a Jackson Countyan, I think prior to politics, I'd been in St. Louis maybe five or six times, and I never understood what all the fuss was about. Um, you know, I met a lot of St. Louis kids at uh, Mizzou when we were d- there together. Um, but after being in House leadership, I've had to come to St. Louis so much. I have to say, I love St. Louis. It is, it's such a, it's an awesome town. I think it's got so much potential, and it's, it's just different than Jackson County. And I'm kind of starting to get to know the neighborhoods, and it, and that's been fun. The thing what, is, what that, do you like to do here? Well, why do you like, why do you love St. Louis? Well, it's got a different vibe. Um, and uh, I think the Italian food's better. Of course, you have the sports teams are different. Um, I have family here. You know, my brother lives here. So I think it's just, uh, it's a great place to visit. It's a beautiful city. Um, and, um, yeah, I've gotten to know it, and it's, I think it's got so much potential, and that's why we're, we're you know, focused on it in Jeff City. And so some of the things, I think the, the two things that we can work on, one is crime, and, and the other is education. And those are things that uh, will affect people in, in St. Louis. And, and this is a really important question. Do you have an opinion on Provel cheese and St. Louis-style pizza? I'm for it. I, I like Emo's when I'm here, and and uh, it's it's different. I, I, I don't have it when I'm back home, but uh, when you're here, it's I think it's... It's good. Well, I don't eat any dairy products, so oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to, to talk about that. But, but in, to get back into seriousness yeah. for a bit, one common complaint from St. Louis Democrats that I hear all the time is that Republicans are quick to advance policies they think are good for our region, such as on crime, but don't really have the support of a public that leans toward the Democrats. Uh, what do you think of that criticism? I think some of it is probably fair. Um, I don't think it's malicious. I think, you know, you've heard it a thousand times, St. Louis is the economic engine of the state. And that I think that's generally true. And so we're all invested in St. Louis being um, uh, the best city it can be. When these uh, companies overseas are looking for places to come, I, I think St. Louis is one of the places that they're looking at. And we want these foreign countries to move factories and manufacturing uh, good family-supporting jobs here. So I think that's why we have that interest. But I can see why if you have a lawmaker from, you know, Christian County doing things that affect St. Louis, why they would legitimately ask, you know, why that legislation or why that legislator. Before you become speaker, though, you have to get through the 2024 session. Uh, what yes. are some What are some big issues that you expect to come up when you all return to Jefferson City in January? Well, I think, you know, people have said that it's probably not going to be the, uh, you know, a, a, the banner session that we've had in other years, and perhaps that's uh, true. But I think we can get, you know, things done. I think it'll be it's an election year, so maybe we'll just be satisfied with you know singles and doubles. But there are there are things that we can work on. And again, um, you know, it's infrastructure. I think we should continue our investment and uh, work on I seventy and other uh, projects that that make these businesses want to move here. One of the things I think we should really focus on, and this is what I hear when I'm out talking with my neighbors and people back home, is childcare. The issue of childcare. Um, it 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 affects our ability to uh, have a workforce that can you know supply the the workers that these companies need. And we're getting to a point where a person that lives where I live 
uh, let's say they have two kids and their childcare bill is $2,400, $2,500, at some point the math makes it where it's just easier and better to stay home. So I think the governor uh, prioritized that last year. I think that's something that we should go to very early in the session. And I think uh, it's something that we should get done uh, for uh, the folks back home that are just, they, they want to work. The workforce is there, but they childcare is an issue. Continuing with the baseball metaphors, because I do love metaphors, and similes are okay too. Uh, what is a single or a double to you? I would say a, a, an example of a single would be, uh, I think we've had bills in the past where um, uh, school transparency. So uh, you would have a website and every school would get a grade and every parent can get on their on the website and say, well, how is my, how is my school, my kid's school doing? And then if they see, well, it's a great school, the scores are good, and then they say, good. Or if they say, oh, it's, it's failing kids, then they can uh, go to their school districts and say, hey, what do we need to do to make our schools better? And in 2025, when there's not an election year, what would be considered a grand slam for you? I would consider a grand slam. So I was I just came here from um, Premier Charter School in St. Louis, and uh, it, it was it was an amazing experience. Uh, I got to see the 900 kids that go to the school um, and met with the principals and staff there, and and to just see the things that they're doing, and and they're really focusing on character-based development, and that's one of the things that makes it. Um, attractive for when high schools are recruiting, and they send a lot of kids to these selective schools here in, in St. Louis. And so I think a Grand Slam would be something that allows a student in Normandy or North St. Louis County to have those kinds of opportunities, whether it's a charter school or a magnet school or uh, a school choice or uh, open enrollment, whatever. I think if we could do something where those kind of kids get those kind of opportunities, that would be a grand slam. Uh, what do you make of the argument that charter schools rob public schools of funding? Because you're going to hear you're going to hear that a lot if you decide to aggressively push that issue. You that that's something that you always hear. But you know, charter schools are public schools. They get funding just from the state. Uh, they get um, federal funding, um, and they get local funding. I, the, it's just the their ability to do things and innovate. I think that's what sets them apart. I don't. I just don't see how they're they're taking away from anybody. I think they're just getting the normal amount that any other school would get. And you mentioned that there's lower expectations for the legislature during an election year. Why are there lower expectations? Well, I think generally speaking, um, to do things that um, are controversial, it's a little bit tougher because, you know, politicians like to keep their constituents happy. Uh, There's also um, some of the political energy is spent on doing things that maybe get attention but aren't substantively um, the greatest thing or have the best chance of passing. So it's just the nature of politics, the nature of politicians, that, and that's why I would say that it's, it's, there's probably less substantive work and a little bit more politics. And there's going to be a number of statewide races up for grabs in 2024, and people in the legislature are going to be running for things like governor, yes. secretary of yes. state. How is that going to influence the dynamic, uh, and how is that going to influence your job of majority leader? Well, you know, like I said, I think, you know, when people are running for political office, it does take up some of the political uh, energy, and that's okay. Um, uh, some of the things that you do, I think, 
you know, it's stuff to garner press and attention. But I can tell you the, the members in the House that, that I work with, they're all professionals. They all might be running for Senate or higher office. Uh, they'll be focused on doing the work that we have um, and getting, trying to get things done. Do you plan to bring up a ballot item to make the Missouri Constitution more difficult to amend in 2024, especially after a, a proposal of that similar nature failed in Ohio? Well, I don't want to say whether we will or we won't. Uh, on that issue, though, uh, of, you know, quote-unquote, initiative petition reform. Um, Thank you for putting it in quotes. Yes. I don't like using the word reform, but you're allowed to do that. Yes, but continue. Uh, the air quotes. Um, you know, there's two things I would say about that, and they can both be true. Uh, one is the way we change our constitution in Missouri, I think uh, it could be better the, to get 50 percent of the vote on a hot August afternoon and to change the constitution. I think it should be a little bit more difficult to do that. It should reflect, you know, consensus and compromise. Just like in the U.S. Constitution, it's very difficult to amend. Um, can you just imagine if you could change the U.S. Constitution with 50 percent of people voting? I mean, that's all we would do. We would just have constitutional amendments and special interests would pay for them and, and the country, it would, it would be ruinous for the country. But with that said, it is also true that to to change the process, I think would be very difficult. Um, I think it's rather unlikely uh, just because it's such a uh, politically hard thing to do. I think people, citizens back home, are generally suspicious when politicians try to make it more difficult for them to participate in the process. So, and I think uh, Senator Rowden, the uh, Senate president, has kind of expressed skepticism already. So I think, uh, you know, I think we will try to work on it, but uh, you have to look at what's happened in other states, and it's probably unlikely. Seems like a may- Oh, I was going to say it seems like a maybe, but you're th- you're thinking it's unlikely that you're going to bring that, that up? That it would pass. Oh, that it would pass. At the ballot, yes. Yeah. I mean, you look at Ohio recently, Arkansas, it's just, it's a very hard thing to do. State Representative John Patterson is a Republican from Lee's Summit and the House Majority Leader, and he will become Speaker of the House in 2025. Representative Patterson, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be with you. John Patterson joined me last Friday, and that was before controversy surrounding current House Speaker Dean Plocker came to light. We'll get to why some people are calling for Plocker to resign in just a moment. St. Louis Public Radio State House and Politics reporter Reporter Sarah Kellogg joins me now. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much, Jason. Congratulations on your first show. Well, we got to get through it before that's you can true, congratulate that's true. me oh, fully. <laughs> what was your biggest takeaway from my conversation with Representative Patterson? I think the biggest takeaway for me from listening to him and having now followed him for basically a year as the floor leader is what he considered was his best moment, which was the health care for postpartum women on Medicaid. And that's something that's incredibly bipartisan. That was something that Democrats really wanted. And that's something that, you know, a good faction of Republicans wanted. And when it did pass, the no votes were from Republicans. So to me, it's really interesting that his biggest win was something that was something that the the parties could agree on. And I think that says a lot about him and his priorities and what they might be a speaker. And another striking thing about Patterson is he doesn't seem to back away from more moderate tendencies, notably on the bill barring minors from accessing puberty blockers, hormone therapy. Mm -hmm. How do you think he'll lead a caucus full of lawmakers who are objectively more conservative than him? I think he kind of answered that in his interview, which was a lot of his needs when you're in leadership, not putting your needs kind of behind the caucus. And he's shown that 
I think through these votes and putting these bills up, he might not agree with them, but he's still putting them up for a vote. He's still moving the agenda forward. So I think he'll have the ability to say, well, this isn't about me. I can't have these legislative priorities and following his caucus. So I think it's not going to be as hard as maybe some might think. Now, Patterson is getting perhaps a little bit more attention this week because Dean Plocker, the current Speaker of the House, is under a heck of a lot of fire. What's going on here? Well, it's all from a story. Again, we credited the Missouri Independent, and they pretty much reported that Plocker had been asking for reimbursements for travel and other expenses that it, for, to his personal account that had already been paid for in his campaign. And it wasn't a one-off incident. It had been happening multiple times. And now he has said that he noticed it. He's already paying some of the money back, and he has. The Independent has reported that as well. Um, but that's led to kind of, you know, the general, this is the swamp at work. This is corruption. So there have been calls for him to resign. I mentioned earlier that I spoke with Representative Patterson last Friday, and that was before revelations about how Speaker Dean Plocker's expenses came to light. I reached out to Patterson, and he told me that a House committee will look into the allegations around Plocker's conduct and, quote, review and act upon their recommendations, just as we have previously with similar matters. He's talking about the House Ethics Committee. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're meeting as we are recording right now, but I believe that they, they did meet today. And it's it's a pretty opaque process. It's not public, from what I recall. No, and I as you were talking, I looked it up. It says in progress still. So they still are meeting currently as we speak, but it is a closed meeting, so we do not know what they're talking about. I caught up with Governor Mike Parson on Wednesday, and he was asked if Plocker still had Missourians' trust and was also asked if he should step down. Here's what Parson said. Well, I, I don't know all the details other than what I'm reading from you guys, but he needs to pay it back. I mean, if he if he's owes the money, he needs to pay it back, and he needs to get straight. He needs to tell it what happened. And that's the only thing you can do is just tell the truth and do what's right after that. So I, I don't know where that ends or where it goes, but right now what I do know is it sounds like he's paying it back, what I do know, and he needs to figure out if he's going to have the trust of the people. I don't know yet. I think it's too early to be able to tell that. That was Governor Mike Parson being asked about the future of Dean Plocker's role as Speaker of the House. What do you make of Parson's comments? I don't think that sounded like a ringing endorsement. I think it also indicates that he's right that it is really early. We don't really know where the chips are going to fall yet. I think that Parson in general kind of stays out of the legislative business. It's kind of been his thing the last couple of years because he comes in, he does state of the state, he matches a budget, he works on budget. You don't really get him commenting much on policy the rest of the year. So I think he's also just kind of trying to keep those branches separate. So we've obviously seen on a national level how uncertainty over the leadership of a legislative chamber can affect whether important bills pass or fail. How do you think Plocker's woes could affect the House's ability to function? With the with the caveat, we don't know how this is going to unfold right now. Yeah, I think that's a good question that we don't quite know the answer to yet. I think that ultimately, as we talked about, as you talked about with Patterson, the fact that it's election year is already going to deal with kind of the functionality of the House. But with the House, there are like... Uh, Previous questions would mean end of debate are common. I think things will still get going. If this was the Senate, that might be an entirely different conversation. But I think with the House, I think things will still probably go on as usual. And as you, you just mentioned, you stole my thunder, Sarah, <laughs> as you, and I'm glad you did. Like, the Senate has been kind of in a constant state of turmoil for a long time because there's factionalism within the Republican Party. It leads to, like, filibustering and name-calling. So... The, what would happen if you have a House in chaos and a Senate continually in chaos? Uh, that will be a really long four and a half months for me, I think, is what that means. But I, And also, we have to 
you know, deal with the fact that the House and Senate also don't get along. It's not even just within the Senate. There have been visions between those chambers for years. So I think we're going to see what that ultimately ends up in a couple months. I think another thing that comes to mind when looking at Plocker's plight right now is you just don't see a lot of his Republican colleagues defending his actions. And you've, you have you've not only have you've seen like several Republicans call on him to resign in the caucus. What, what do you kind of make of the reaction among other Republicans to his woes? I think a lot of people are waiting to see what comes out of this ethics commission. I think it's still really new information. I think that the, that knee-jerk reaction, now there are some that are doing that. I think you have to mention at least one of the people calling for Plocker to resign is running for a position himself. So you have to think about elections and how they play into it. Representative and maybe the, Doug Ritchie, yes, who's Ritchie. running for state senate. Continue. Yes, so th- I think you have to think about that too as well as why they are choosing to speak or not. I think that's also a point of consideration. Now, before we go to break, one of the notable things about that conversation with Patterson is he doesn't seem to think that making the constitutional harder to amend will pass. Like, how do you sell that idea to voters? <laughs> that You repeated the question that I've asked like every Republican while we've done our Politically Speaking podcast, which is how do you sell this to people? Because, I mean, it failed in Arkansas and it failed in Ohio. And you have to think of, well, these are things that people want. They want to pass recreational or medical marijuana. They want to pass minimum wage increases. And, and if the legislature fails to do those things, this is a method for them to do that. So how do you sell that to them other than, oh, it makes our constitutional or constitution more you know, protected. People don't care about that. They want the things that they want, I think, to be able to vote for it. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll open our mail back and answer your questions. This is the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Welcome back to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. St. Louis Public Radio State House and politics reporter Sarah Kellogg is still with me. And it's time now for our mailbag, where we answer your questions about Missouri, Illinois, and St. Louis politics. And what better way to kick off this inaugural mailbag than from the amazingly named Vice Admiral Walrus from Reddit? What's the vibe on the abortion initiatives getting on the ballot or passing next year? The delay tactics tell me that the state GOP is very afraid of it. Sarah, what are these delay tactics that our friend Vice Admiral Walrus is talking about? So these delay tactics started with uh, the fiscal note. Um, So there is a set of initiatives. There's uh, multiple sets. Jason will get into that a little bit. But this one particular set, there was a disagreement between the attorney general and the auditor over how much this this variety of abortion amendments, which would legalize abortion but deal with other issues, areas of health care, of reproductive health care. Um, there was basically a disagreement of how much that would cost, and the attorney general refused to sign off on this fiscal note. That went to court. That ultimately went to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court said, no, you can't just, you you have not really more than just a, a, a rubber stamp to do this. So that was the first lawsuit, and that delayed it for months because there was, that, uh, basically, the ACLU sued over this delay. And now, once that got, you know, once that lawsuit was resolved, then uh, the ACLU sued again over the wording issued by Secretary of State Ashcroft, which they called too extreme. Now, that has not been resolved yet. That's still going its way to the courts. But that's months and months where they could be collecting signatures. So those are the delay tactics they're talking about. And if that isn't enough, yesterday there was a lawsuit filed over another batch of abortion initiatives from Jamie Corley. 
and they are more modest than much of the 11 you just talked about. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing, re- trying to rewrite the ballot summary language. But they're also challenging the fiscal note, namely the fact that uh, it says $21 million will be have to be spent on addition litiga- additional litigation costs. That's going to kind of wind through the courts in, in, in the coming mo- weeks and months. Mm-hmm. So Teresa Murray asks, please explain how the Missouri Presidential Caucus will work. So uh, I, I think we'll probably actually spend an entire show on, on specifically how it works. Mm-hmm. But the reality is Missouri's had state-run pri- pri- presidential primaries for a while. That's no longer the case. It's run by parties. The Democratic one will work pretty similarly to a primary where you could go into a location or do a mail-in ballot. But the Republican one will be like Iowa, where you actually have to physically go to a location and you have to you have to like physically gravitate toward a candidate. And Republican Chris Gron Howard it was our, the person that actually came up with the rules for this caucus. And he's not happy about it. And he says that this process is not convenient and arguably discriminatory. When the legislature didn't pass this, they disenfranchised every Republican who is, serves in the overseas in the military, can't be there on that specific, you know, because the caucus, you have to not only be there at that day, but you have to be there at that specific time and you have to stay there. That's Republican Chris Gron Howard explaining why he's not a fan of the the party run caucus. Sarah, I know that there was an attempt to try and go back to the state run uh, state run uh, process, and I just hit the microphone there. Uh, why did that fail? Um, ultimately, it didn't get enough votes in the Missouri House. There was an effort, uh, you know, and it's also come back to last year when they passed it for the first place. So this is very new for people. I'm not sure people actually know that this change is going to be happening, which is why we're going to do a show on it. But ultimately, there was an effort. It got an up and down vote, and it failed. And so I don't know if there's going to be an attempt this coming year to maybe reverse it. But ultimately, why this passed in the first place was a big omnibus bill. And this was something that people who ran elections wanted. Um, so we'll see what ultimately happens. Robert Werner asks, did the St. Louis City Water Department receive any funds from the state or federal government to repair and or upgrade its water purification plants? I learned while talking to a licensed plumber that a water softener device would cost $3,000 to $4,000. How hard is city water? It seems Everyone would benefit if the city could soften our portable water. Well, I actually, we actually touched base with Nick Dunn, who is a spokesperson for the St. Louis for St. Louis Mayor Tashar Jones. What what did Nick say? He said the city has not allocated American Rescue Plan funds specifically on the water division, though the city is looking at federal grant funding opportunities through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and other federal sources to make upgrades. The city recently increased rates, and Dunn said to quote ensure the water division can rebuild its reserves and continue to provide the best tasting drinking water in the country. Is St. Louis drinking water tastier than Columbia drinking water? Oh, a thousand percent. I I would agree with that. I lived in Columbia for a while. I live there now, so yeah. Uh, Tish on X, which is what Twitter Twitter is called now, wrote in to say, I'd love to see the revenue sources in the city of St. Louis and the county explained, especially the city. That is a very that is, again, an answer that would probably require a whole show. But Sarah, you have been covering the future of a very important revenue source in the city. Uh, what what can you tell us? That is the earnings tax, which makes up a big bulk of the revenue in St. Louis City. And so last this past fall, Speaker Dean Plocker created a committee to examine both uh, 
both the earnings tax and then expanded it to include property taxes, but mainly the earnings tax, which impacts St. Louis and Kansas City. And right now, it's really an exploratory committee. We had uh, Representative Jim Murphy on the show uh, on our, one of our podcasts to explain it because he's the head of it. But basically, they're examining it, seeing what they can do to improve it or maybe possibly phase it out, which that's the big question of, okay, then where does the rest of the revenue come from? Um, so right now, it's really exploratory. They actually have their next meeting on Monday, but they're just gathering information. I know one thing that he really does want to work look at and probably do would be dealing with remote work. So people who worked remotely, but for St. Louis businesses, but then still had to pay that earnings tax, even if they lived nowhere near St. Louis. So I know that's something he's very interested in looking in. Um, so it's just a, it's an early process. They're going to meet a couple more times and you know we'll probably see some recommendations out of it at the end. And uh, Jason Rosenbaum writes in via Carrier Pigeon <laughs> to Sarah Kellogg. It's hard to believe that we are only a couple months away from the legislative session. What are some issues that you're going to be paying attention to? Um, as you mentioned, uh, with Patterson uh, initiative petition changes making it harder to amend the Constitution, that's kind of the first uh, person I've heard kind of be a little more like, I mean, I think it's still going to get done, but a lot of people have a lot more faith in that, uh, that it's going to at least pass and maybe make it to voters. So I think that's still going to be a focus. Um, I think foreign ownership of farmland, that was something that uh, made it through one of the chambers last year. Ultimately, there was a lot of disagreements between the two chambers of what that could look like, but I'm sure that will be up again. Um, my, I think sports betting is yet another topic. It's this. Yeah, I did a whole feature on this of why people are just frustrated that they can't get this done. That one might we might have to wait another year for that one, but I'm sure there will be attempts. So those are kind of the ones I'm thinking. And as always, the budget. We're going to see this is probably the first year in a couple years that I think the budget is going to be smaller because we're not going to have American Rescue Plan funding to kind of bolster some of these projects. So we're going to see what a maybe possibly smaller budget looks like under Parson as well. Yeah. I know that a lot of people want sports betting to become legalized. I don't know if I'm one of those people because of my well-established disdain of gambling, but that's I'm not I'm not here to decide that. <laughs> but Sarah Kellogg is St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter. Reporter, thank you for being here. Absolutely. If you have a question about Illinois, Missouri, or St. Louis politics or government that we could answer in a future show, send it to us. Email talk at stlpr.org or call our voicemail line at 314-516-6397. And that is 314-516-NEWS. Support for the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air comes from the Sue and Lynn Schneider Charitable Fund. Today's episode was produced by Jason Rosenbaum. Our audio engineer is Aaron Dorr. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.